Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Devanin. He is the author of Sex, Drugs, and Jesus, a memoir about his struggles with drug addiction, homelessness, serving in the armed forces, an HIV-positive diagnosis, and rejection from his church for his sexuality. He is also the host of the Sex, Drugs, and Jesus podcast and is the owner of Down Under Apparel. So Devanin has a lot going on, and I'm excited to hear what he's got to share with us today. Obviously, we'll be hitting some heavy topics, but I appreciate him coming on and sharing his story. So Devanin, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you, girl, for having me on your show today. I'm so glad to be up in here. How you doing? (laughs) I, um, you know, yeah, I do have a lot going on and I love being extra and I love my extra life. Um, as one song artist, I like, as Drake said, you know, I'm really trying to make it more than what it is because everybody dies when everybody lives, huh? And so... (laughs) And so all of those things that you said ha- happened, they did happen so much more than that. Um, I'm so happy to be alive today. I feel like that God spared my life so that I can tell all of these tales and stories because we gain strength true through transparency. When I got HIV, I thought I was alone. I thought I was like the only person in the world with it, which was completely and utter truth, but that was my perception of my reality. How we think about things changes everything. And I don't believe that I survived all of those things that you just mentioned to traipse on along and have a nice, quiet, peaceful, successful life and not say anything. That's not what the point was. The point was so that it can be documented, ergo the memoir, so it can be spoken about, ergo the podcast, so that once I'm dead and gone and you know, gotten my wings and flown off wherever, you know, it is that we fly off to, you know, that these experiences can still be here to give people strength and hope, you know, it's so that it can be as permanent as possible. That's such a great outlook. So can you take us a little bit at the beginning of your story? Um, You know, you kind of just alluded here to your passion to the church. So what it was like coming out when you were younger? I actually, for me, never came out. I don't personally believe in it for myself. I know that it's a really huge deal. Nine out of 10 people you talk about, because this is my thing. If you can't look over here, you know, deal with me and understand that I am not heterosexual, honey, then I don't need to try to explain that to you. The writing is on the wall. It is abundantly clear. And it always has been since I was knee high to the ground. My grandmother and I had a whole scheme we worked out. I, uh, when my parents were gone, I would go and get my mom's little two inch heel pumps, slide my foot in them. You know, you still got like six inches hanging out the back because, you know, my foot's tiny. He's half the size of her foot at this age. I'd have on an oversized shirt and I'd go get 
uh, one of her belts and tie it around my waist and make me a dress, honey. And then I would twirl around, slipping and sliding in my mother's uh, pumps. And my grandmother would keep a lookout at the door to warn me when my parents were about to pull uh, in the driveway so that I can get out of character so that we could end the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I never, ever came out, you know, and I did, you know, not, you know, dance and everything in high school and was on the wrestling team, mainly managing it, not really wrestling so much. And, you know, and then eventually, you know, I went to the military and I was 17 and so I really wasn't around my family when I started becoming an adult. And then I was in the military and doing don't ask, don't tell. So coming out wasn't an option. So I never really got into the habit of explaining myself to people or saying, this is who I am. I want you to accept me. Eventually, when I got, once I got out of the military, then I started bringing, you know, guys maybe I was interested in or other non-straight people around my you know my siblings where I lived at in Houston but I never had an official moment of people I want you to know I'm not straight oh no that's not gonna work for me and you know and I, my my mind was like this my family can either get with the program or they can get the fuck because I'm not it's not gonna be that way this is what's happening you're either on board with it or you're not and personally I wish more of my people in the alphabet and mafia community had more of an edge about their attitude because then we would stop hurting ourselves and cutting ourselves and killing ourselves whenever somebody in our family doesn't accept us. Because, um, you know, as it says in the Hebrew Bible, and I may do some Bible references today, I want people to understand that I don't think everybody should be a Christian. I don't think, you know, that life is for everybody. That's who I am. And so that's where I draw my references from. I go down to the Buddhist temple. I love hanging out with them as other bald people like me. I feel I'm in great company. They make the best vegetarian food. And then, you know, they don't make me bow to the Buddha statue. They don't take it as a sign of disrespect, you know, you know, it's a free flowing thing. So I respect all religions, all cultures, you know, so that's totally cool. So I may talk about spiritual references, but I am not trying to tell you to what to believe in or anything like that at all. Um, but as it says in the Hebrew Bible, you know, uh, there's a friend that sticks closer to her than a brother, a better uh, friend near than a brother far, and that when your father and your mother forsake you, that the Lord that the Lord will take you up. And so we got to find a family that's going to work for us. We got to get past this blood relative uh, foolishness because it's 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 hindering to us to to be. To, to, to need validation from people just because we share the same bloodline. You can share the same bloodline with somebody and have completely different personalities, be completely different people. You don't have to be in relationship with somebody just because they are a blood relative. I'm not saying, you know, just go and break up with your whole family immediately, but I'm saying if somebody's judging you, then you don't have to take that from them. And so oftentimes we hear families, blood families say stuff like we go through all this and we get all wild with each other, but we always come back because we're family. No, I don't agree with that because that is a presupposition, a presumptuous way to deal with somebody would basically you're saying no matter how much I abuse you, you're always going to be there because we're blood. Hell to the now. You keep abusing me and I'm going to leave and I'm not coming back. 
<laughs> you know, mom, dad, sister, brother. I cussed everybody out at one point, I'm sure. And I just like, no, not care who you are. It's not going. It's not going to go that way. This is a bit of a soapbox for me because I've just, it's such a stressful thing that I see with people and I'm a licensed massage therapist too. And so many of my clients, you know, they come, they would come in there. I close, I had to kind of shut the office down because of the Corona, but um, you know, and you know, they have all these problems and so many of them have to do with their blood relatives. You know, it doesn't really even <laughs> like if they would just like cut that person out, half of their stress would go but it's like they don't feel like they have a right to do it or that they have the ability to do it. Why do we have a dependency on family like that, even if it's to our detriment? And um, so no, pick your own family. When teenagers get thrown out of their house for coming out, they find their way into drag families. Drag mothers raise some, some of these children, drag grandmothers, you got your gay aunties and everything like that. You know, that, you know, family can be found in many, 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 many different places. And, um, and so now I tell them, I told them nothing. I just showed up. Yeah, this is, this is Drake. This is Terrence. This is whomever passed the salt, <laughs> you know, figure it out <laughs> because it's decided already it's done. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I think the attitude that you have about, not having to come out and then not, you know, if, if your blood family is not respecting you, it's okay to walk away. They should respect you. Um, that should be the main goal. But if, if things can't change, um, you know, it is okay to walk away. So what, even though, you know, you didn't actually have a coming out story when you came back from the military, what, was the reaction from family from the church as you started to be more of an adult? I think everybody had more of a reaction when I came back home on leave one time with all my piercings in because they had, you know, I was the, the altar boy at church growing up and everything like that. You know, my pastor's assistant, you know, I left looking very conservative, you know, all gapped out and everything like that. And I came back with my LeBray with my labray pierced eyebrows, both ears, nose, and everything grunged out with kink, kickwear and Jinko jeans from uh, Hot Topic and Gadzooks and everything. So I did a complete 180. That's when everybody was gasping and clutching their pearls. <laughs> when I went all goth. <laughs> so, but in terms of sexuality, not so much because there was always non-straight people on the street growing up, in church, the organist, the musicians, always gay. You know, it's not like it wasn't around. It's just one of those things that was just quietly tolerated no matter where I was anyway. It was plenty of non-straight people in the military. It's not like it's not there, you know? And so now one of my siblings, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna discuss gender with my siblings because you got pretty much you know, one's male, one's female. So if I say the sister, the brother, then it's gonna, and so I'm just gonna say one of them, you know, had some, had some, I'll say discrepancies with perhaps me bringing non-straight people to their home. Okay. So, and so what I did, I just simply didn't do it. 
okay. I don't, I, I think perhaps this particular sibling may have thought perhaps me and my non-straight people could turn their children non-straight, <laughs> perhaps. I don't know, but this same sibling, and this is one that I don't talk to currently, um, is the one that told their children not to eat after me <laughs> because I have a history of HIV and hepatitis B. You know, children are going to say, repeat everything you tell them, especially when they're that little. And they were like, yeah, this, this parent of theirs told them, <laughs> told, told them not to eat after me. So, okay. <laughs> like, what can you catch? Not that I'm going to be like stuffing my spoon in, you know, any of my nephews' mouth anyway. I can say nephews because both of my siblings have had nothing but boys. <laughs> no, there's no, there's no nieces. And so, uh, <laughs> so um, it's not like I'm about to feed them like that. Like, what, why would that even happen? But this is the same sibling. When I was homeless on the streets of Houston, and both, both my brother and sister lived in Houston at the, at the same time, and they still do. I'm homeless on the street, and they're there. This is the same sibling that told me not to come around their house anymore. I didn't go out there and do anything. I didn't cause a scene. I, had never, I didn't even go. They just assumed that I would do something. <laughs> this is the same sibling. And I'm saying all of this to, to highlight how family can be, okay? And how it's okay, because I'm currently in the process of walking away from this sibling because this, this particular one has just been controlling and manipulative like pretty much the whole time they've been like alive and it hasn't stopped and they're like, you know, not exactly a spring chicken anymore. I'm the youngest in the family, so I can pretty much say that about everybody. And um, this is the same one when our aunt died a few months ago, decided what we all should pay towards her funeral, even though she aunt, this aunt refused to get health life insurance because she felt like Jesus was going to come and get her in the rapture. I'm all like... You can feel like that all you want to, bitch, but where is the money? <laughs> where is the money? Now you're all dead and stuff. And we got to split like almost 10 G's and whatever to, I, you know how much wine I could have? I need to live my life. You, this, she wanted to go down to the Riverboat Casino and I ain't got no judgments for gambling, whatever. Win your money, baby. But if you're going to be at the Riverboat Casino with your check every month, I'm at least need you to put aside something not even a hundred fucking dollars <laughs> that I know of maybe maybe she had some money left in her savings account because she died at the beginning of the month not in her savings and her checking whatever her checks would be deposited so she didn't have a chance to gamble it all away and so this, this sibling decided how much everybody should pay and then I said I would think about it or something like that and so this sibling decided to to call me uh, entitled and selfish and everything like that and had a whole falling out because I wouldn't spend the amount they had decided I should. And then I let this sibling know you will not be controlling me today or any other day. And, 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 and then the sibling tried to use my past when I was homeless in Houston when my parents had to come and help me. And I don't know what anybody else did because I was so twacked out on meth, I couldn't tell you what anyone was doing. So this sibling tried to say, because this happened all those years ago, you must do this today. So they tried to use my weak, weakest point of my life to manipulate and make me do something almost nine years later. <laughs> and when I told them no, they threw a 
fit. And um, and I was like, okay. I mean, the insults and all of that, the character references took me aback because we only talk once or twice a year. I wonder how this person knows me so well, <laughs> you know? And um, and so, you know, I'll be discussing this with my therapist I talk to weekly because when we do cut family off, it's not like it's not a mental strain. I, I appreciate and understand that that's going to happen. So I will be talking to my therapist as I begin to phase this sibling out of my life. Now, I left it on the table. I was like, if you ever want to talk about, because this sibling's whole thing was like, we went through so much when you were going through your stuff. Okay, y'all, I'm homeless on the street. I own nothing, no job, no car, only the clothes on my back, not a penny. My siblings have, one's a doctor, one's an engineer. They have their, you know, homes, cars, money. Okay, you, okay, we, I'm homeless on the street and dying of HIV. And you want to talk about what you went through <laughs> during the same period? Okay, so I, I'm sure it was a strain on you. But whatever you went through, you had food, you had clothing, you had shelter, and I had no, I didn't have the basic needs met. But I said, if you ever want to talk about this, I'm up for the conversation. I've heard nothing. So since this sibling would rather just be negative, internalize all what they went through and make it about them, rather than rejoicing and being thankful that I didn't end up being killed during those times. And I barely, you know, was escaped death several times, many times out there on the streets. You know how many people would love to have their younger brother be in the situation I'm in where it cost them whatever to keep me alive rather than going to the funeral. <laughs> and so I'm saying all this to say, feel free to dismiss yourself from your family. It will take a toll on you and have a plan in place, but don't stay there and take the abuse. And that's really unfortunate that you do have a sibling like that in your life. And even like the story about the sharing of the food is so ridiculous. Can you share a little bit what it's been like having to share your HIV status with people and the negative connotations or weird reactions you might get? Absolutely no negative connotations, no weird reactions. It was nothing like I feared in my head like it would be. Because when I got HIV in Houston back in 2011, there were still people dying of AIDS now. Like, you know, I would walk into a, a gay bar or something like that. Like, hey, where's such and such? Oh, they're dead. <laughs> you know, or some, you know, like this, one of the, the main drug suppliers who I met, you know, a somebody who was a legend in the criminal underworld, you know, Daniel, you know, there in Houston, he died of, of AIDS, you know? So I had ready knowledge of people still dying of HIV. And so, but when I came, began to come up out of the funk of it all and went back into social media, did this long post about why I disappeared. It was years, you know, I was a, one of those people, every five seconds I was posting a selfie or checking in on Facebook and everything. And now I don't, you barely ever catch me. I put my cats on social media. That's what people want to see these days. They want to see my two pussies. And so, um, um, Felix and Felicity are their names. Felix D cat D capital D apostrophe cat with a K. And then the girl, she's strictly speaking, miss, Felicity Cleopatra, and <laughs> that was their full names. 
As I got more transparent about it, though, Sarah, people started messaging me on social media going, okay, I just got found out I'm positive too. You know, I'm afraid, you know, people started opening up more. I got nothing but love and affection and a sympathy and an embrace. Even in the hookup culture, I was thinking I would be a pariah. No one would want to touch me. I felt so filthy and dirty and guilty and ashamed. Nope. There's, hell, now on the apps, you can say whether or not you're HIV positive, negative, undetectable. There's more people around me who are HIV positive the whole time, and I just didn't know. And so I can't say outside of my sibling that anybody was ever negative or nasty about it except that individual. <laughs> That's really great to hear because, you know, even as my question kind of alerted to, there is still a, a bit of a negative connotation. Um, so it's good to hear that, like, as a member of that community, it isn't necessarily what people might think on the outside. No, the negative connotation is it's not gone away by any means, the HIV stigma, as they call it. But when you, it depends on the sort of people that you're hanging around. So if you're, so closed-minded people, especially here in the South, you know, and stuff like that, especially outside of the alphabet community. Yeah. You know, my siblings, especially this one is not inside the alphabet community. You know, this one does not go to pride events and stuff like that, like the other sibling will, you know, they both identify as straight. Um, this depends on who you're talking to, um, which is why, you know, I reinforce, be careful who your company is. You know, you shouldn't be going around somebody who's going to judge you anyway. Anybody who has any kind of knowledge of the alphabet community knows that HIV, you know, and things like that is a part of it. You know, look at Pose, look at Rent, you know, very popular shows about our community is rifled you know, with stories of HIV, because it is that common. And um, the reason why we have a lot of negativity about it is the way it was marketed originally, you know, like showing us all the people in Africa and everything all shriveling up and dying with flies on them and stuff like that, that stuff makes an impression on you. And, um, but now you have stuff like PrEP, which is Truvada, I do believe. And now there's ways that you can shield yourself from getting it and there's, I mean, that doesn't, you know, there's people who really like, seem like the more things you have going on with you, the more they embrace you, you know, I didn't think I could have kids or, you know, have a, a significant other or anything like that. No, most guys, as long as you're honest with them and tell them what's going on, they, they're ready to work with it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's truly great. Now... You talked a little bit about the meth and the homelessness. Can, so can you explain how you got to that point in your life? I had been offered drugs probably ever since I was a child on up until the day I took that first Asian ecstasy pill. I said no because of the strong influence that my spiritual le leader, Evangelist Nelson, had over me. And, you know, and I was still heavily involved in church volunteering, ministering, worship leading and stuff like that. When I got kicked out of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas for being LGBT, that QIA plus, I'm all the letters. And um, that created a void. I was doing at least 10 hours a week at church, you know, and so, but maybe I only go to the club once or twice a month. 
So once that happened, I began to seek community in the streets. And so since my heart was broken, my shield was down and so was my filter. And so everything that I used to say no to, I now started to say yes to. And I had a job that didn't drug test. And so um, so the next time after I got kicked out of church and everything like that, a guy was like, hey, do you want to do drugs? I was like, okay, sure, let's try it. And then everything that I used to say no to became yes, because I was traumatized by the experience of getting thrown out. And I didn't know that it was trauma, you know, I, I should have gone and gotten counseling or some sort of therapy or called my evangelist Nelson and told her what had happened. But, you know, you don't want to go running and telling people you've fallen from grace, <laughs> you know. So I just didn't say anything and I just got all mad about it. I stopped going to all churches. I stopped donating to them and everything. And then I took on a, a more of a role in the nightlife I didn't know then how much we truly seek community in some way. We are always going to go and find some type of tribe because no man is an island, as, as the, the uh, author said, and I can't think of his name right now, but, you know, and I didn't know that. And so the thing for me to have done would have been to stop or reassess and find a gay affirming church. And there's plenty of denominations out there that accept LGBTQIA plus people who appreciate our gifts, who don't think this because we're not straight, we want to molest children, um, which is like the main reason why I got thrown out of Lakewood, because they thought I was, they found out I wasn't straight and they're like, you can't be around children anymore instantly. And so, um, and so, so that's how the drug started. It started with an ecstasy pill, the guy explaining to me how to do it. You know, my eyes look like Mickey Mouse that night, and uh, <laughs> which, which means like all black, like, oh my God. So this is why those techno songs are like 30 minutes. You're like, yeah, this makes so much sense right now. I don't ever want it to stop. And so, <laughs> and meth was the last drug I did. I was, I, I was holding on to some degree of, I don't know, restraint. And I was like, I started with a little ecstasy. Then one day I had a party at my apartment in Montrose, the gay district in Houston. And this other guy I was interested in had some cocaine. I'd never done cocaine before. He's like, you want to try this? I'm like, sure. And so and then, then G, GHB, GBL. And then one day my best friend from the Air Force was visiting me. And I was on like, I don't know, Adam for Adam or Grinder or something. And I, and I met a guy. He was like, hey, you want to try T, which is like a street name for Tina, crystal meth. And I was like, okay. You know, so I went on down there, <laughs> you know, and so, um, and I just got real wild. I broke bad. I was almost 30 years old at this point. I had never done any kind of anything like this before. And that's how it all started through a, through a broken heart from the church. And so then how did you get out of being homeless and getting off the drugs? Okay, so I, the homelessness officially stopped when they transferred my probation because I became a drug dealer. Uh, now, I was just a drug user. I have a very extreme personality and I'm business minded. So I'm going to take anything that I get a hold of and take it as far as it can go. And so I'll put it in context like this. The people who I was buying my dope from were moving about two kilos a day. And and I was moving a, enough weight for, for me to have their attention for them. Yeah, for me to have their attention. 
and I sold everything, crack, heroin, meth, pills, Molly, G, uh, G you know, weed, Coke. It didn't, it didn't matter. My store was called Drugs or Us. I had uh, syringes. I had pipes. I, I offered a full service curated drug experience and business was good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and so I got, I got like a couple of felonies in 2012, got arrested and everything. And so they had to transfer my probation from Houston to Baton Rouge to increase my chances of success because typically you're not successful if you try to do probation or parole, hanging around the same people who got you into the trouble in the first place. So that ended the homelessness because I had to move back in with my parents <laughs> at the age of 30, <laughs> which was a whole circus show. And um, through the Department of Veterans Affairs, since I am an honorably discharged veteran, six years United States Air Force, they have programs in there because homeless veterans, drug addicted homeless veterans is kind of like, it's just uh, uncomfortably common in the United States. <laughs> and so, so I was in that statistic. And so they already have programs in place to help drug addicted homeless veterans with mental health issues get better. And they had a program that paid for my apartment to get me out of my parents' house where me and my dad killed each other. Um, so that's how I got my first apartment, solid living after having had lost everything. It was paid for through a collaboration with the VA and the housing authority. So that's how the homelessness ended. And then how did you, like, did the rehabilitation work oh, that you never went right. back to drugs? Oh, girl, no. It's not, no. It was, it was, I was on and off of drugs up until as recently as, say, like, two years ago. Um... I'll say this, I think I did like a harm reduction model without realizing that that's what it was called. That harm reduction is different from your traditional rehab 12 step. I don't know how I feel about the 12 steppy programmies. Um, I'm currently going through them with a sponsor now and I'm staying with it because I wanna go through the whole experience so I can talk better about it because the 12 step programs have a lot of incongruencies and holes in them. And the main thing that I don't like about it is that they take the power away from you to ever be healed of the, as they call it, a disease of addiction. And what I can't jive with or reconcile is if I have a higher power and there's Jesus Christ and he has all power, then how come he cannot take this away? Why are you telling me I have to have this for the rest of my life? And at the same time, I'm supposed to have a higher power but with, with limited power, like that doesn't make sense to me. And then they also don't uh, define cig uh, cigarettes into cigarettes and coffee. Cigarettes and caffeine is mood and mind altering substances. And I'm all like, uh-uh, uh-uh, ain't no way that you're going to tell me coffee and cigarettes are, are not mood and mind altering substances. You take one to wake up and one to relax. Generally speaking, you don't just do it for the flavor, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> So they got some things to them that I'm just like, okay, no, girl. And um, so I went from like, say, shooting up meth or smoking it daily to maybe every couple of days, which turns to maybe every couple of weeks. And then maybe I would be able to be sober by my own willpower, maybe for a month or two or three or six at a time before doing it again. 
I don't like to look at, you know, things like that as relapses and lost times. Because to me, you know, if you went from daily drug use to slowly every other day to slowly weekly to slowly monthly, that is improvement. It's gradual, but it, it's still improvement. And so it just got to a point where it was just so seldom. And then I went to Miami. It was right when the corona was kicking up and I got caught the flu out there because I did so many pills. I didn't know I didn't know any cocaine, no meth, no nothing, pills. And I got so sick. I think I had the, the flu for like a month. It was like, you know, I was like, fuck, I, I, I got to stop these drugs. And so that's when I started going back to rehab. That was like my bottom, as they would call it, because I was so sick for so long. And um, and then I, I and I haven't really done them since I did uh, a little experiment a few months ago because I was so I felt like I wanted to defy the program that was telling me that since I had a drug problem I could never control it again and so I went and did some meth I think a little bit of crack just to see if I would um okay you're telling me that if I do this I'm gonna lose everything and I'm gonna just you know everything's gonna be all just go to hell okay and, and I've come to understand that I'm not the only person who's come to this point in their sobriety where programs told them what they can't do. And, this, you know, something in that is that always wants to defy. You, you tell me I can't. OK, I'll show you. And so it was kind of that attitude. So and so I, I did it a few times and then I stopped. You know, I just didn't really enjoy it the way I used to anymore. You know, and I haven't touched it since. And so. I feel like that I have proved to myself that, yeah, if I want to, I can. I don't think it's worth the risk for me to continue doing it. It's not like I just enjoy it. I really just didn't thoroughly enjoy it like I did back in my 20s and when it was new and fresh. And so it's not worth trying to find a way to negotiate it into my life. But for somebody else, if they used to be you know, addicted and it used to cause problems if they can come to a point where now they only do it on their birthday and on some weekends, I don't consider them in a state of relapse. You now have control because if you'd have been doing that in the first place, you never would have been in considered an addict. So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it it does. And and you made a lot of good points about progress and control are are so important compared to the, you know, the bottomless addictive states and the not being able to control and, and get a hold of things. Yeah, because people want to feel empowered. Nobody wants to feel like they can't. Everybody wants to feel like they can. Um, there's so many different spiritual movements out there, people who look up to the universe and feel like the universe gives them what they need. Uh, you know, people like that talk a lot about the power being within, you know, I'm okay with that, whatever, you know, just don't tell somebody what they can't do. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's, that's, you know, in those, in those programs, if you really look into like the a lot of the original Alcoholics Anonymous texts and all of those anonymous programs, Crystal Meth Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, I think Sex Anonymous, uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, they all kind of follow that same model. It's very churchy, it's very regimented, very religious, and it's very like anti-woman <laughs> too, the way a lot of it was. And um, in the program is like, it doesn't work for a lot of people. I don't really think it even has a really high success rate. 
and you have other things out there like Rational Recovery. That's a book that I'm reading right now that's basically the anti-AA uh, program. Um, you know, so my recovery journey is now studying different types of it. I've, you know, I've interviewed people who are harm reduction advocates, um, you know, and things like that. You know, girl, if it's your 10th time in rehab and it's your 10th time trying to work the, the anonymous program, try something else because clearly it's not working. There's, but a lot of people don't know that there's other options out there because all everybody talks about is anonymous this and anonymous that. Why do we have to be anonymous? You just from the beginning, you got to You tell somebody to go run in the corner and I know it's, it's other options. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, at what point did you decide you wanted to write the memoir and start the podcast? I started writing this memoir back in 2013, 2012, no, 2013, about time that I got back to Baton Rouge, still living with my parents and everything. I would take, just started, I got tablets and started writing notes. I had always wanted to write a book, you know, ever since I had been in the church long enough because you know every 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 damn pastor has a book you know or 15 books and 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 what a lot of them do is they just take their sermons that they've already written and they just regurgitate them into books and put a different cover on it <laughs> that's all they do and, and, uh, and um and uh but you know i had felt like you know that made books look like okay, damn, this is cool. And they can make a lot of money off of them. And I've always felt like that I would have some sort of story. I just thought that it would be like them because most of their books is them telling somebody else what to do, how to improve. Their books aren't ever really about them. You know, if you really look at a lot of religious people, they don't really talk about themselves a whole lot. <laughs> they might tell you like a little something. The worst I ever heard one of them say about them is that they would get uh, upset and be difficult to be around. That's it. I hear about no nastiness, no perversions, hardly anything like that. And so when I came back here, I started writing and I started working on this memoir two years ago. So that was about 2019 and I started taking notes in 2013. And so that long I had just been jotting down stuff as it came. And, and then the podcast came about because of the individual who um, has had a strong hand in helping me write it was just explaining to me that, um, you know, podcasting and books go hand in hand. Or maybe somebody else, I think maybe my web developer guy actually told me that first. But anyway, like it's, it's a thing now. A lot of authors have podcasts and the two go they work in tandem with each other. And so I was like, okay, well, this makes sense to do. So let's do it because I don't take my calling to share these mess this message lightly. I want to do it just as extreme as I've done everything else in my life and take it as far as it can possibly go so that whenever I die, I know that I've done the best that I can. So if podcasting is what it takes to help to spread the message, then let's podcast then. But the idea came from other people and it made sense to me. And so here we are. And what can people expect if they listen to your podcast? A lot more cussing, a lot more perversion because, and they can expect it in my book. Like my book has a lot 
of sex scenes and stuff in it because it's just true. You know, we're, we're very sexual people. Just some of us talk about it more than others. And it's like my store down under apparel, which is a lingerie store. You know, high traffic, a lot of people like to buy such things, but they don't want people to know that they have it. And, you know, you know, and for that reason, you know, I don't put down under apparel on the label. There's an acronym on there. You know, it comes in discrete packaging. So it's not that people don't don't like to hear, you know, naughty things, kinky things, risque things, edgy things. They just are not going to tell everybody that they're doing it. There's no drug show, weeds, snowfall, breaking bad, narcos, anything like that that ever flops. People, cops, you know how, how many seasons all these shows have. People love to hear about dirty, you know, scandalous things. They love it. Oh, they love it. And so that that's that's how my show is. Um because it, it tells the truth and people like that because that's that's the reality a lot of people live in that's been my reality i can only speak from my reality now everybody who i have on my show not everyone's been a drug dealer not everybody's been on drugs but you know they have to have some sort of personal overcoming some sort of personal struggle something like that um like for instance one lady she's really good with you know, helping, you know, women and people to overcome and different things like that. That's great. That's not the, you know, but she, I let her, I had her on my show because, you know, she knows what it's like to be on food stamps and stuff like that. Like I used to be on before, you know, so there has to be something like that, that to me, you know, the, the, the podcast has, it says taboo topics and troubled times. So there has to be something, some sort of edge or something taboo. Nobody wants people to know when they're on food stamps and collecting a check from the government. You know, that that's shameful. It's degrading. People feel that way, generally speaking, about it. So something like that. So not everything is going to be very sexual, but it will, every show will have some sort of thing that's going to make you just be like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, this apparel company, the lingerie business, how did you get into that? Oh, I have a severe underwear fetish, girl. It is through the roof. And and it started to develop when I was in the military. I just started, you know, because then I had like a consistent income coming in that, you know, was coming from the government, not, you know, working at Raisin Cane's or Wendy's or, you know, fast food. And so I'm just buying clothes and stuff like that. And I love fashion so much that I did, you know, as a model when I was a kid. And even I did it for a little bit when I was in Houston. Evangelist Nelson, my mentor, owned a clothing store and everything like that. So I have a fashion influence in my life. And I was just drawn to underwear, you know, and, and I just love all the different ones. When I before I got drug rated, before SWAT came and got me, I think I had like a few hundred different pairs of just underwear, which I have accumulated that now and exceeded that number, I'm sure. I hang all my underwear on like skirt hangers, you know, each pair, you know, and so I have a strong passion for fashion, but especially lingerie. And I'm business-minded, so I tend to try to turn things into an enterprise. And so I thought about doing it before. Before I was homeless, I was making like 30 to $70 an hour. So having money can be sometimes very demotivating for starting a business. And so since I was homeless, you know, anyway, and having to build my life back up, you know, I had a, I had a 
prolific wardrobe. Like I had a, a daytime outfit and a nighttime outfit. I would not be seen in the same outfit at night that I had on during the day. That's how vain I was before I became homeless. And, and um, But I had to build my wardrobe up from five shirts and five shorts and jeans again, you know, you know, back to what it is today. And so since I had nothing, I was like, we might as well start. So I went to a flea market, rented a booth. My parents came in and helped me paint it and set it up. And I found vendors to order things from and down. Then it was called Down Under Men's Wear. We, we, because it was only men's stuff. Then we've added women. So now it's Down Under Apparel. But that's how it started in a flea market. That's really great. <laughs> Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share about your story? My primary message to people does revolve around spirituality because so many things that ail us boil down to mental and spiritual health or a lack thereof. In my studies, I'm also a a licensed hypnotherapist as well. Um. In my study of the mind and of spirit, so many problems that manifest in physical ways start on the inside. And so I would like to encourage people to tend to all aspects of them. We take care of ourselves sexually pretty good. Um, everybody's going to try to make money. Everybody you know, is going to try to eat. But please don't leave spiritual stuff and mental stuff on the table that you may be psychologists or licensed clinical social workers. Always good to have a third party to talk to who's not like a friend or a relative just to bounce things off of that they, they don't need to medicate you you know even if you only go once every three months you know i recommend some sort of and even if it's not professional then just study up on the mind go on the internet and look up something to be aware of why you're thinking what you're thinking and to be more focus that way and then spiritually to believe in something i don't care if it's god buddha confucius i don't care but or if you want to worship the universe whatever but to do something to have a conscious a routine or a conscious something about you spiritually where you know okay this thing that i'm doing is to cater to my spirit my afterlife something like that so that you're, because most people would agree we have some sort of spirit or soul. Most people would, even if they're agnostic and don't believe in anything at all, you know, because emotions and feelings cannot just live in flesh, you know, and so they manifest through flesh, but they cannot begin there. So I would say just do something because that's a like a like at least half of your being. And if you don't do something with it, then you will become out of balance. And then that could mess up your finances and your health and all kinds of stuff. And you could be scratching your head trying to figure out what is the problem. And so just please do something spiritually and something mentally so that you may be whole. That's a great message. Now, with all of my guests at the end, I ask a random question that's a little bit different. So my question for you is, what fictional place would you like to visit? Hogwarts. And why why Hogwarts? Because it's real. It's not fake. I know it's real. I know it's out there. <laughs> because I know, because it's magical. It moves by itself. You have all the characters out there on the grounds. You know, you have like everything. I want to go talk to Moaning Myrtle. 
you know, in the bathroom and see what's going on, girl. I want to talk to the spirits and talk to the, the elves and, you know, see them snap their fingers and make magic happen and everything. And I wanted food to come up off the floor and I want to see the candles floating in the great hall. And I want to get sorted by the sorting hat, you know, because <laughs> I'm going to be a Gryffindor unless it's October, then I will be a Slytherin. <laughs> so, it's a magical world. Like literally it's everything. And now having said that, fuck you, JK Rowling and your anti-transgender foolery. But she did give us a gay Dumbledore. So it's like, yay on the one hand and middle finger on the other. <laughs> you know, but I do want to point out that I do not agree with J.K. Rowling's anti-trans foolery. <laughs> but she's not at Hogwarts anyway. She's not allowed there anymore. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving Devannon's website sexdrugsandjesus.com, a direct link in the description. So that will bring you, of course, to his podcast, the book, all of the good links, and including a resources page, which is really helpful for people in the LGBTQ plus community. So definitely go check that information out. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast here, our website is in the description, which brings you to all of our social media, all of the episodes from the past first year, and lots of good resources that previous guests have offered as well. Thank you so much to Vannon for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you so much for having me, my dear sweets. Be great, all you beautiful people out there, and just remember that everything is going to be all right. <laughs>